It was my fault. I made a foolish decision. In the past, I had always told the bride and groom that the ring bearer would not carry the actual ring on that little satin lace pillow. Too risky, I would tell them. What if he loses it? But this time, I caved. They urged me to let their little nephew carry the actual wedding ring on the little ring bearer's pillow. He's almost eight years old, they assured me. We trust him. Well, okay, I said. It seems to me he's old enough to handle it, not like a little two or three-year-old. This is a big boy. The moment arrived. The organist hit the crescendo of the processional and the bridal party began regally marching down the center aisle and the ring bearer wet his pants. <laughs> he was right back there in the corner behind the mannequins. He was standing there with that little pillow and his grandmothers and his aunts were stripping him down out of that tuxedo and toweling him off with paper towels. And there was this long gap in the processional. And then he got his tuxedo jacket all back on and he went flying down this aisle as fast as his little feet would carry him. And when he got right about there where Marilyn is, he tripped over those patent leather shoes. Probably he was walking funny because of the wet pants and he tripped and he fell and that ring went flying. And then the mother of the bride got down on the floor where Mary Linda is and she started searching for the ring and she missed it. She missed the moment that every mom waits for her whole life watching her daughter walk down that center aisle she missed it. There is so much that can go wrong at a wedding. But of course, the worst thing that can happen is for the bride or the groom to be a no-show. Today's parable tells the story of 10 bridesmaids all dressed up and waiting for the festivities to begin. They wait and they wait and they wait until finally the lamps burn out of the oil and they fall asleep. And then at midnight, the groom shows up and five of them jump up and reach into their backpacks and refill their oil lamps to illuminate this beautiful and joyful and sacred moment. And five of them panic and run to the quick trip to see if they can get more oil for their lamps, but it's too late. Those who bring extra oil are called wise, and those who don't bring extra oil are called foolish. Now, some folks are bothered by elements of this parable. They don't like the fact that the wise bridesmaids who brought extra oil for their lamps refused to share it with the foolish bridesmaids. And they don't like how the door gets slammed in their faces when they return from the quick trip with enough oil to light their lamps. But I suspect that Matthew wrote this parable wanting to make us anxious, wanting to stir us up, because Matthew knows that those who lived in the first century after the time of Jesus were going to run out of oil while they waited for Jesus to return. They were expected 
to be anxious because Matthew knew that at some point they were going to lose hope. Matthew isn't trying to say that sharing is bad or that Jesus is cold-hearted, quite the opposite. Matthew selects this image of a wedding, a symbol of heaven and earth being married, to remind those frustrated Christians that God still longs to be united with them. You might remember that one of the first miracles we read about is Jesus at a wedding, turning water into wine. And just a couple of weeks ago, we read here a parable about a wedding and a wedding guest not wearing the right garment. The prophet Isaiah declares that God desires to be the husband of Israel. Over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, we read about a wedding as an image of heaven and earth being married, the divine and the human connected. And so Matthew begins this parable in a joyful way, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. And the people go, yeah, 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 Matthew, we got that. And then Matthew says, heaven is delayed. Matthew is posting one of those signs, like the ones you see on the highway when you're driving on 435 that says, expect delays. Matthew knows that they will run out of oil for we always run out of oil. And Matthew knows that they will fall asleep, for we always fall asleep. But how will we live while we wait? Will we wait as those who have no hope? Or will we wait as those who are expecting God's return? My granny on my mom's side lived in Frost, Texas, population 312. Granny got married when she was 14 and raised 12 children on the farm and only moved reluctantly to town after she was widowed. Now, I use the word town, but what I really mean is like two dead-end streets near the elementary school. That was the town. Granny never wanted a telephone in her house. She saw no need for a telephone. Occasionally, some of the kids would get together and say, Granny, you have to have a phone. What if there's an emergency? What if there's a fire? What if you get sick? And she would say, okay, I'll take a phone. But Granny would never plug the phone in. And so everyone gave up. About every six weeks or so, we would drive down to see Granny after church on Sunday. And I remember feeling shocked when I would walk into Granny's house and there on the speckled Formica counter in Granny's kitchen were two pies, lemon meringue and coconut cream. Granny, I'd say, thanks for making pie, but how did you know we were coming? Well, I didn't. She would cackle when she laughed. She said, I just made the pies in case you came by. And this for me is the definition of hope making two pies, not knowing if anyone will stop by to eat them. But I never figured out how Granny maintained that kind of hope. Perhaps that is why the parable says that the foolish bridesmaids were unable to simply borrow some of the oil from the wise bridesmaids. Maybe hope can't be borrowed. How do we cultivate hope? If hope makes life worth living, how do we nurture it and develop it? 
When your marriage is failing, you can't just run next door and borrow a cup of hope. When your spiritual energy runs dry and you're no longer sure if there even is a God, you can't just stop by the public library on the plaza and check out a volume on hope. And frankly, hope is not all that useful until the world around you appears to be in shambles and you are filled with doubt and worry. Then hope either comes up from within or from without or somewhere or it doesn't. I think Matthew knew that much of the Christian life would feel like standing here at the altar and wondering if the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Heaven, would come and marry the human race or not. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas put it like this, Disciples of Jesus must learn how to take the time to patiently hope in a world that thinks it has no time for either hope or patience. Where do disciples of Jesus get this hope? Where do those families in Sutherland Springs, Texas, who were robbed of their 18-month-old son or their 14-year-old daughter because a man who shouldn't have owned a gun shot them in church? Where do they find hope? Where do those women who have been victimized by men who took advantage of their own power go for hope? Where do those who were addicted to opioids go for hope? Where do we go for hope when we're worried about a family member whose memory is failing? Where do we find hope when our own country fails to protect the natural environment that God gave to us? Emily Dickinson writes, hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. It's so elusive, this thing called hope. You can teach love. You can practice being faithful. But how do you teach hope or practice it? Where does it come from? Sometimes I think maybe it comes from deep within us that when God created the human being, God planted hope within us at the beginning of creation. Some of you may remember that there was a little boy named Eldar who was a fifth grader at Border Star Elementary who began coming over to this church after school each day to play this piano. He would sit and play it for two or three hours. Eldar spoke mostly Russian, only a little bit of English, but he could play American jazz like nobody's business. Eldar is now in his late 20s and has recorded nine albums and toured the world. He lives in New York with his wife. A couple of years ago, Eldar was playing a concert in Los Angeles, and it was a, a strange concert in that he was sharing the stage not with another musician, but with a neuroscientist, and they were going to perform together to illustrate what happens in the brain when a musician is composing and performing music. 
the neuroscientists said that the neurons in the brain become more devoted to music when you spend hours and hours and hours practicing. And Eldar put it this way, the best music is made when you're not even conscious of anything beyond you. Maybe this is where hope comes from, from that place deep within us. Maybe hope is there if we will but listen to it. Or maybe hope comes from our own efforts. Dr. Anna Carter Florence was teaching her students one day about how they could be a light to the world, that they could go out and share the light of God's love and peace and goodness with the people around them. And while she was teaching, she took a little oil lamp, one with a real wick and real oil, and she lit the wick and there was just a wee bit of oil in the bottom. And together in class, they watched it burn out. And she said to them, how can any of you be a light to others if you have no oil? And she challenged them to consider what each of them could do so that they did not run dry in their own spiritual lives. To think about what it would take to refill their own source of oil. Would it be for some to take time to meditate or pray or read a book or play golf or go out on the lake or cook dinner or do a service project with their Sunday school class? What would it be to nourish their own spiritual lives? Maybe hope happens when we actively nourish our own spiritual lives. But maybe if we really want to know where hope comes from, we could look back at the most hopeless period in our recent history. Let's look at Nazi Germany during World War II to the life of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who exhibited unparalleled hope. The late Peter Gomes tells about the time that he met a donor who was considering a very large gift to Harvard University. And at the same time, this donor wanted to give a statue of Bonhoeffer to the campus. The donor said, Harvard students need a model of the good life. And Bonhoeffer, he said, is as good as it gets. Gomes wanted to court this gift from the donor, but he didn't know that much about Bonhoeffer. He knew that Bonhoeffer had stood up to Hitler boldly, that Bonhoeffer had been imprisoned for several years near the end of World War II and was executed by the Nazis just days before the war ended. But he did not know that Bonhoeffer had been in the United States before the war broke out that he had been traveling as a preacher and a theologian and that he had been urged not to go back to Germany where the risks to his life were great, but to stay here in New York and take a teaching post. Bonhoeffer went back to Germany and began to preach and to write. And the Nazis forbid him to preach or to write. And so he went underground to preach and to write. The clergy around Bonhoeffer adopted an official policy of non-intervention into political affairs, but Bonhoeffer could not remain silent. 
He did not place any hope in the idea that human beings would come to their senses, nor did he place hope in the idea that God would send a prophet to rescue them. Instead, he wrote, God gives us the strength to resist. Bonhoeffer's hope was rooted in the belief that God would surely come. After almost two years in prison, Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his mom on the occasion of her birthday. He enclosed a little poem that he had written called Powers of Good. The poem begins with every power for good to stay and guide me, comforted and inspired beyond all fear, I'll live these days with the thought of you beside me and pass into the coming year. And then Bonhoeffer ends the poem with that same image of the power of good. While all the powers of good aid and attend us, boldly we'll face the future, come what it may, at even and at morn, God will befriend us. And oh, most surely, on each newborn day, at the worst moment of hopelessness, and at the worst moment of Bonhoeffer's brutal incarceration, he declared that hope comes from God. Wherever it comes from, we know it comes. Hope comes. Jesus who came comes to us now and comes to us in the future. Dare we miss it?